Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. If you want to get an audiobook on the house, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You got to spell it out in proper English. You go there, you can get yourself a free audiobook. They have 100,000 titles. They have even more than that. They have hundreds of thousands of titles in every possible genre. So go check it out, audibletrial.com slash other people. Get yourself a freebie. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just okay, one time. Okay, folks, here we go again. This <laughs> right. is it. This is other people. This is totally unabridged. This is sort of improvisational. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Uh, you might be able to detect it uh, to detect it in my voice that I'm in a bit of a hurry. I have a lot of responsibilities lately. Got to go pick up my child. Got to get across town. It's hot outside. I've got shit to do. I'm juggling. My wife is especially busy. I'm especially busy. When that combination happens, um, then it can become difficult to manage it all. I was out late last night. I was drinking caffeine late. I did sleep, though, but I woke up feeling like I might be getting a cold, so now I've been taking uh, oregano. That's my latest thing. I think that if you take oregano oil, you will never be sick. I also have been taking the uh, echinacea drops from Whole Foods. In case you were wondering, I hope I, do I sound a little, uh, husky voiced Can you, can you detect uh, a little bit of the, uh, infection in me? Am I exercising it? Is this boring? Uh, my guest today is Guillaume Morissette. He's got a, uh, he's a Canadian novelist. He's got his debut out. It's called new tab. It's available from vehicle press. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, he's also got a short story collection out there called I am my own betrayal that was published in 2012. And uh, I believe he's uh, I believe he's a prominent member of the Altlet community. I think that's safe to say. Guillaume Morissette, Altlet member. Is there a membership for Altlet? Is there some sort of ceremony? Do you get a letter in the mail? No, you wouldn't get a letter. You would get like an email. You get a text. 
You get a tweet. <laughs> you get followed. You get a picture of Frank uh, Frank Hinton's genitals when you become a member of Altlet. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm totally just winging this one. I'm I'm short on time, and uh, I feel like this might be unprofessional, but I'm doing the best I can. I want to talk to you guys. I want to give you a program. That's what I'm doing here. Things are good. I've been doing a lot of walking. I do a lot of walking when I have to do a lot of thinking creatively. I find that the two things work well for me. So that's happening. I've been working on some uh, script stuff. I'm going to be cryptic about it. I don't like to talk about creative projects that are in motion. But I've been working. I've been busy. I've been producing. I've been trying. Should we get on with the show? What else can I tell you? (laughs) Let's extend this painful monologue. Let's do that. Let's just have long periods of silence interspersed with me making semi-coherent conversation with nobody in in a room. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, My guest, Guillaume Morissette, as I told you, he's from uh, Canada. He lives up there in Montreal. He's uh, one of the few Canadian authors that I've spoken with on this program, and uh, I'm pleased to have him here. He's got a new novel, as I mentioned. It's called New Tab, uh, which I believe is uh, in reference to, like, internet surfing. So let's get to the conversation, shall we? Let's talk to Guillaume Morissette. Actually, you're not going to talk to him. You're going to listen to me talk to him. Here he is. This is Guillaume Morissette, and his book, once again, is called New Tab. So when I moved to Montreal, I was, like, recuperating from... um, I moved from Quebec City to Montreal, and I think at the time I was, like, recuperating from, like, a depression and stuff, and... Um, I just wasn't satisfied all that much with what I was doing with my life, but also like who I was as a human being. And I kind of saw through like um, trial and error and kind of like meeting people and stuff that um, there was like, I just had like kind of like more um, in common and like more uh, like mindedness with uh, my friends from like the Anglophone community. And it just became like this drive where it was kind of like, it just became this very convenient way to reinvent myself to switch to English as a primary language. And at the same time, it added like tons of benefits. Like I started doing the writing thing and that came from kind of like being interested more and more in like Anglophone, like contemporary literature and like just finding stuff online and stuff. And 
um, it just became this thing where it's kind of like uh, preceding English as opposed to uh, like preceding French for writing. Um, it was kind of like having access to, uh, at the same time, um, like a wider pool of readers as opposed to only Quebec. It was kind of like just North America and even like the world in general. So that seemed like really exciting to me. And at the same time, it was kind of like from um, being able to access, um, I don't know, like um, being able to... Um, meet like-minded people online, like other writers and stuff, and being able to kind of like network with them on social media, something that I probably wouldn't be able to do if I operated only in French. It just became this kind of like very clear path that I had to go in that direction. It's definitely not like um, a standard thing for like someone who's from, uh, my hometown is actually called Jean-Pierre. It's like five or six hours away from uh, Montreal. And it's just like this smaller, like um, French Canadian town that's like a little bit further up north. So a little bit colder up there and yeah so it's definitely like a standard pad and i have to find kind of like it, it just became like this thing where um it was just kind of like a lot of like trial and error to figure out like oh okay that's where like my skills and like abilities and like sensibilities as a human being are um, better suited but yeah it took a lot of like just kind of like trying different things and failing and like wondering why it failed and stuff like what like what did you fail at um, I think the old video game thing was really interesting because it's kind of like I was like really into video games when I was a kid and like a teenager and stuff. I was kind of like I don't come from like a literary background all that much. I really came from kind of like a background of when I was a teen, I would play like role playing games a lot and just being like really interested in um, what uh, like the story would communicate, but also like um, how it communicated it. Like it just became this like forum in my head where. Um, I could just use it like very imaginatively where it's kind of like I would just be midway through like a role-playing game or something and wondering where the story was going to go and um, just kind of like imagining like an outcome for the game. But then the game would unfold in a completely different way and I would feel kind of disappointed by it because like my outcome was actually superior or I felt more excited about it. So it just became this thing where it's kind of like I was using kind of like literary elements from something else but it never dawned on me that it's kind of like um, that that was the direction in which I was heading that my true sensibilities like there. Um, and yeah, like, so the video game thing, I did that, um, when I got, uh, when I lived in Quebec city for a bit, I got a job in like this, like small studio that was kind of like making a little bit of everything. So they were making kind of like, they were just kind of like the studio that used flash to do just about anything. So it's kind of like, and the guy from that was kind of like this really good salesman. So it's kind of like if he had a client that was just kind of like, oh yeah, like we need something for like e-learning or something. Suddenly they were like the kings of e-learning and they didn't like everything about it and stuff. And it became this thing where they kind of became a game studio over time where they kind of realized like, actually there's a lot of money to be made in that. So let's all go in that direction. Um, and my job just became this thing where it's kind of like, they didn't necessarily have like really good um, operational like structure in place. So my job kind of became like learn on the fly and kind of like, all right, like let's throw as many people as we can at this thing until um, we figured out like a way to get it done. Um, so I, I ended up kind of like experimenting a lot for that job and kind of like wearing different hats. Like I did um, design, I did like programming, I did like sound design, I did a bunch of stuff that I wasn't necessarily trained for. I just kind of like learn. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask you, like, so you've got like a technology, like a technological bent, like you can uh, design stuff and program and code and all that. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I mean, I'm not like, I'm definitely not like uh, a programmer or anything like that. I definitely have kind of like some programming skills where I can do like websites and stuff, but I'm not like, I wouldn't be able to kind of like act like, I don't know. Um, I don't know, some, I don't know, like some uh, visa.com or something like I wouldn't be able to do that, but um, yeah, um, so, so I definitely have kind of like sort of a technological background. Like my first thing, I did CEGEP, um, which is like 
Cégep is between um, university and like high school in Quebec. It's like this thing that they put together so that people wouldn't have to go broke, like trying to access higher education. So Cégep is kind of like... That's a revolutionary idea. Yeah, no, it's actually really good. So Quebec actually has like a really great education system for that. But it basically, Cégep is like pretty cheap and it basically allows you to kind of like try different careers and stuff. And I originally did multimedia through that. Um, So it was kind of like I was going in that direction a little bit. Um, and that's what led me to kind of like working in games after that. And games was just kind of like, I love games. Like, I'm going to be great at this. But then over time, like you ask why, um, what I considered a failure. And over time, it's kind of like, I kind of like, like over the years, like working in games and kind of like working in an office environment and stuff. And just realizing that it wasn't at all like this kind of like party career that like I'd imagined. It was actually just like a job. Right. Um, and it was just became this that, thing where, by the way, that's most, that's most things, even like, I think yeah, even, yeah. <laughs> even writing after, I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a job element to anything if you're trying to do it for money, I think. Yeah. That's where they get you in a way. Cause it's kind of like, they kind of present you this thing where it's kind of like, um, I don't know, it's really, really tricky to take something that's a hobby and put it as like something that makes you money out of it. Cause it's kind of like, after that, you just can't look like after a while, I just couldn't go home and like play a game. Just to have fun, like I just couldn't do it anymore. It was just kind of like. Well, no, you get, uh, you get kind of deconstructivist. It's like when you go to film school or something, you go to watch yeah, a movie, yeah. and you can like you're always like seeing the camera, and you know it sort of ruins it. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like seeing kind of like the puppeteer in the background. It's just kind of like yeah, it's speedy. Like you just become like very kind of like um, I don't know, impossible to satisfy in a way. It just builds like this like impossible standard in your head for kind of like um, this like imaginary ideal game that just doesn't exist. And it's like impossible to exist. Yeah. But I, and, think, I think like the, the more optimistic view would be that, you know, as opposed to like my cynical take is that like this would <laughs> having an education and understanding the actual you know, inner workings of how these things operate would, uh, create an experience for you as a user that is deeper. It enriches your experience of gaming or, you know, in my case, watching films, but yeah, I don't know if that's the case. Um, you can definitely kind of like go if if I was kind of like a critique and like looking at at it from that angle, then I could definitely find enjoyment into it. But being from kind of like a perspective of like being into it, the thing as well is that I felt while I was working in that industry, I felt like constantly like handcuffed creatively. It was kind of like a lot of it. Like I started with the studio that wasn't very well organized, but then I moved on to kind of like different studios and like I ended up working for um, Electronic Arts after a while. That's like when I moved to Montreal, and that was just kind of like kind of a shit show in terms of like. Um, how many layers of like hierarchy there was to actually get anything done. It was just like really insane in terms of kind of like you would get like, um, so EA is kind of like there's like smaller studios in different places. There was one in Montreal and uh, Mothership is kind of like in Los Angeles. Um, So you get kind of like people like execs or something that are just kind of like marketing bros essentially. And they just come in and kind of like complain. And then you have to do whatever it is that they tell you. And then regardless of whether it is, so they kind of like usually they're, um, they don't necessarily have like the full context of why certain things were made in a certain manner. And so it's kind of like they just comment on stuff where it's kind of like um, they just like complain. And it's kind of like these like pie in the sky complaints where it's kind of like just impossible to actually like satisfy that. Um, And after that, they leave and like we get to work again. Uh, But it just became like this impossible climate of kind of like, um, you never felt like I never felt like I was actually like um, in like a final product that we would ship. There would be maybe like two percent that I actually had design in that, and like the rest was just kind of like everyone putting in kind of like vetoing something or like putting in kind of like their um, sounds like fil- sounds like filmmaking. Yeah, probably. I mean, I'm I'm assuming it's like similar, but in a sense, it's, it just became very frustrating in the sense that um, I don't know. I didn't feel satisfied creatively. And I kind of turn like more and more towards literature. So where I consider it a failure 
is that like invested kind of like a lot of years being into that and thinking, yeah, it's going to be a career for me. And then uh, when I finally kind of like had enough after like five, six years of working and just being out, like this is going nowhere. Like I just feel like I'm in a dead end career right now. Um, and I wasn't necessarily interested in kind of like I could have gone like the indie game route or something, but even the medium itself, I was starting to get really wary of it. And I had a kind of like self reinvention through like literature where in like 2009, I kind of like binge read everything that I could read. Um, and after that, it just became clear that it's kind of like, okay, there's something there. Like I need to kind of like shoot in that direction. So I just kind of like put together, like I did this thing where um, I applied to Concordia to do like the creative writing program, but I didn't have like, you have to submit like a portfolio and stuff. Um, and I didn't have like a portfolio of English writing at all. So I just kind of like put something together in like a couple days and I submitted it on like the last day of like, um, it was just kind of like, fuck it. I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to do it and we'll see what happens. I just submitted it on like the last day um, to kind of like send your um, portfolio and stuff. And uh, yeah, I ended up getting it in, but it was just kind of like this like duct tape together, like portfolio. What, that what just, the hell is that? Is that a cat? Oh, it's a cat in the background. <laughs> All right. Um, so, but yeah, and what were you reading? Like that, you know, when you got to this point where you finally made the leap and you submitted this packet of writing uh, to Concordia, like, well, like all, along the way, you must have been inspired by what you were reading. And I think you alluded to it earlier, but was it mostly online uh, literature or were you reading... Uh, particular authors that you know tipped you in the in the in favor of literature i think um the stuff that really worked for me was kind of like this like tragic comedy kind of thing where it's kind of like uh, or just kind of like very witty uh inspiring writing where um so a lot of stuff that i read early on was like i mean just bought that like uh, almost at random without necessarily having kind of like a good grasp of literature i just bought that from like there's this bookstore in montreal it's called drawn and quarterly um and i just bought that what's it called it's called Drawn and Quarterly. Okay. Um, and yeah, um, so they have um, these books on the front table and stuff. And usually they have kind of like really interesting picks, but I kind of benefited from just being kind of like, yeah, that seems all right. So I just kind of like, I just felt like exploring a completely different direction. So I ended up kind of like reading a lot of stuff like MBD, like Laurie Moore, like uh, a lot of the 80s writer. And then I read like Miranda July, like No One Belongs Here More Than You Do. And that led me to kind of like, through Miranda, I found like Taolin, um, EEE. And then I got uh, Gene Riss, and then I got kind of like, it just became this rabbit hole of kind of like um, loosely connected writers. Like sometimes it would just be stuff like someone named drops a writer in like an interview. And at the same time, like even through like Tao and other writers, I became interested in like Ichimo Giant, like the millions and stuff. So I found like more suggestions, more stuff to read to that. And after that, it just became this kind of like, just like endless, like I would just order stuff at random from Amazon without knowing what I was ordering and just being kind of like, yeah, that seems about right. So probably I should read this. Okay. So, uh, did, so you, that, did you also start socializing online? Like, was that an aspect? Did you find yourself integrating into a, like a virtual community of writers? Yeah, a little bit. I was kind of like, uh, so I'm a little bit part of like the Altit community, which just became this thing where... Wait, the um, the Altlet community? Yeah, um, I started through that. It was kind of like, I think in 2010, maybe I added like maybe late 2010, I had like Steve Rogan back online and I had like Spencer and like a bunch of other people. And it was just kind of like, I wanted to expand like um, the network that I had of kind of like writers and social media. So I just added them on like Twitter and like Facebook and stuff. And Steve did this thing where um, there was like this insane shred in like, I think it was like mid 2011. This is Steve Roggenbuck. Yeah. And it was this thing we did. Um, it was like, there was like this photo on like Baby Ziva's wall, the fashion blogger Baby Ziva. And um, you just tag like a bunch of people in that photo just to be kind of like, okay, let's have, let's use this as kind of like this like public discussion chat room. Um, and it just became this like recurring joke where it's kind of like for a while, 
um, that just became like this public uh, chat room where like people were just using this random photo on Bibi Zevo's uh, Facebook wall as kind of like this like public chat room where they were just kind of like talking and it grew and it has like something like 40,000 comments now. Um, so it just became like this very insane thread and through that, it's kind of like um, Steve had tagged me for like whatever reason through that and I kind of like started participating and like through that, I ended up doing um, this reading with like Steve in New York that was like in maybe August 2011 and that's how I met like Spencer and like um, a bunch of other writers from like um, uh, Mike Bushnell and stuff uh, just from that area so that it's kind funny, of like it's, you know it's funny I hear these kinds of stories all the time when it comes to like online literary friendships like particularly um, well I don't know I don't know if Altlet is if it's specific to Altlet but just online literary friendships and online friendships period uh, but particularly those that sem- you know that center on a common interest it's very easy when you're on social media to be looking at the interactions between people and to assume that they know each other really, really well and that the <laughs> buddies going way back a million years because you see the same people. You know what I'm saying? You start to see the same faces in the same places over and over again. Yeah. yeah. And it's easy to imagine this world and these relationships. And then you find out that like, yeah, we were just like commenting on the same Facebook picture. And the next thing you know, we were in New York and I've met him <laughs> once in person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's a weird thing as well. Where it's kind of like I went uh, so late in May, I was in New York again. Uh, I went with like um, my friend Ashley with this reading thing for like uh, Shabby Dollhouse. That was like at Mellow Pages. And it was this thing where like the first night I ended up going to um, Sarah Jean's Alexander's apartment. And it was just kind of like. There was, like, a couple of people there and stuff, and it was, like, just all internet people. Like, I've met, like, kind of, like, Sarah Jean, I've met her before, I've met Spencer before and stuff. We're still not, kind of, like, we're super close friends, but still, kind of, like, we can hang out now. Um, but it was, kind of, like, very quickly, it just became this thing where it felt, like, almost immediately, being, kind of, like, in a room of people that I mostly know from online, it just became this thing where it felt like my real life had become my internet life, and my internet life had become my real life. Like the day after, I was like talking to Montreal people on Facebook, and then just being kind of like, "What is happening here right now?" Like I don't. Um, Do but yeah, you think it's good? You think it's a positive? Yeah, no, I think it's good in the sense that it's kind of like it's. It became really interesting. I've never been like a big travel person, uh, but it became really interesting to travel for me lately because it's kind of like I just go to like random. I can go to like a random city, and like I'll have like some vague person that I sort of know online. And I can kind of like crash on their couch or something or we can do a reading or like, so there's always these like advantages that are kind of like um, fairly interesting. It just makes it much more, um, that's much more stimulating to me to do that than like to just kind of like go somewhere and like be a tourist or something. Like I'd much rather kind of like have someone that I vaguely know and I can kind of use as kind of like. um, You're serious? Like, see, I'd be freaked out. I'd be like, I don't, I barely know you. Like I can't, (laughs) I can't sleep on your couch. It could get weird. Like you're just, you're, you're willing to do that. You can, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was this thing where I'm doing book festivals in the fall, and there was this thing where it's kind of like they send you, um, there's like this festival that just sent me this thing where it was like this like um, uh, invitation that's written in like this like full like cursive like handwriting font. It's almost kind of like the font that you would use for kind of like a digital like wedding certificate or something. This like, like very like, proper. Like, like Edwardian script. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. And it sounds like they're addressing like Margaret Atwood or something. And it's kind of like stuff like, oh, we'll pick you up on the airport and you'll get to stay in like, uh, or like four star hotel. And like, um, and it's all kind of like, that's, that's good. But also you could put me on like someone's couch and I would be probably like much happier than like some hotel or something. That depends. I don't know, man. I, I feel like uh, bathrooms are always an issue. Personal <laughs> space, like you know, it's like there's only one bathroom and you feel weird. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm too neurotic, but oh, I'm like super low key though when I travel. I'm like a cockroach. Like I could fit in like. Um... But see, well, you don't want a cockroach in your house. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Maybe, maybe that's though. not the animal you want to compare yourself to. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. More like a quiet mouse. Or, I yeah, guess a, a mouse is not something you cat. want. To, yeah, it's a cat. Or something. Right. A cute, like, quiet kitten or something. Yeah, exactly. A chinchilla. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to get back to, I want to rewind a little bit because you mentioned, yeah. you know, as part of this process of transition from the gaming life and the gaming career to uh, a literary life and, and uh, hopefully uh, a lucrative literary career. Uh, that you were experiencing a depression. Like when you say depression, like how serious are we talking? Like were you? Oh, it was pretty bad. Like I ended up going on antidepressant and stuff, and it was kind of like for a while it just felt like this kind of like almost like having this like Charlie Brown esque like dark cloud like following me around or something. Like it definitely felt in that way, and I wasn't necessarily in a space where I even got like um, the um, worst part of it is that I started having like anorexia issues, which was kind of like I was like, wait, you started having anorexia issues? Like yeah, anorexia. Um, yeah, anorexia. Um, it just became this thing that was like uh, many years ago, though. So that's like 2008, probably. And I think I was using that as kind of like I was just like not very happy in Quebec City, and um, I think I was just using that as kind of like almost like a cry for help. So it just became this thing where it's kind of like I started obsessing over a certain thing, and I kind of like taught myself into. Um, a certain lifestyle that kind of like needed to do these things. Um, and it was just kind of like um, to get some form of attention for someone to notice that, yeah, actually I'm like really not happy at all doing this right now. Um, but so then, how, so how much were you weighing? Like how did you, like how did I went as low as like one ten, and like my just general body weight would be maybe 140 would be like uh, my, so that's like healthy. So you're 30 pounds underweight. Uh, I was 30 pounds underweight. Yeah. So it's kind of like I started having, like I was shivering and I didn't know why. And like, I was kind of like, there's something medically wrong with me to have some kind of like imaginary, like Brazilian disease or something like, um, so I started looking on kind of like, like WebWMB or something and just kind of like trying to diagnose myself. But like, yeah, and I was constantly talk tired about, as well. Talk about so. a rabbit hole. Like don't ever, yeah. I'm, like every time I Google anything health related, I like, <laughs> slip into a, like a state of mortal fear. yeah. I know it's very easy. I feel like they want you to do that as well. Yeah, no, there's like there's they, they purposely kind of like keep the symptoms like vague or right. um, just a uh, yeah. It's like it's like yeah, it's like like my right temple hurts, and it's like the first <laughs> thing that comes up on Google is like brain cancer. <laughs> yeah, 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 always or you know like it could be something that's seemingly inno- you know seemingly innocuous like red blotch on hand, and it's like <laughs> you know you've got like Ebola, but. Um, okay, so you you are you're manorexic. You're thirty pounds underweight. And then you eventually reach out for help and get some antidepressants. So did you uh, seek psychiatric care? No, not I didn't get to that point. Um, I kind of like did um, just kind of like uh, consulted with like different teams of doctors. It was this weird period where it was kind of like, um, so I ended up kind of like thinking that there was like something medically wrong with me, which, which is kind of like to the point where I ended up getting kind of like finally like some medical attention. And through that, there was this weird thing where I was like constantly tired um, in this period. And because you weren't eating. <laughs> yeah, no, at all. <laughs> but you were and, like, let me ask you, because you were, you mean, did you, weren't, weren't you just like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling weak and, and tired all the time. Something's medically wrong with me. It's called anorexia. Or were you yeah. like in some sort of denial? Yeah, I was definitely in some sort of denial. I think it was just kind of like some, um, I think at that point in my life, I hadn't necessarily kind of like um, experienced any kind of like strong personal drama. And I think it came from that, like this kind of like, I had kind of like, um, I mean, like uh, there's been things, but it wasn't kind of like, um, I never did like kind of like suicide attempts or anything like that. I never had kind of like um, someone that kind of like, I don't know, got into like a horrible car crash or something. I've been kind of like relatively like unscattered so far in my life. Um, and I think it came from kind of like this like denial of kind of like, 
Um, the other thing, yeah, the other thing as well is that I was trying to convince myself that I was doing the right thing and that I was like a smart person. And um, it came from this kind of like misplaced like ego of being kind of like, but I can't, there can't be something wrong with me. I'm like this smart um, person, this smart young professional that works in video games. Like I can't, there can't be something wrong with me. That couldn't be right. Like that doesn't make sense. Why would there be something wrong with me? So I think I tried to convince myself that no, actually it was just kind of like some horrible, like out of control disease that like was responsible for all these like weird issues that were starting to pop up. Um, yeah. Denial is crazy. Denial is pretty intense. Yeah, like, definitely. Like, and the thing as well is that I still have that. Like, not not necessarily in the term, in the terms of denial, but really in terms of kind of like putting like these insane like mental barriers between me and something that would make me happy or something that I would enjoy. Um, and yeah, it's complicated for me to um, ask things from other people. There's just kind of like it's, I'd it like. Sucks. It sucks. It's much. It's much better to be asked. You know. It's yeah. Like, it's nice to be in a position where you get to be kind of like the, uh, the giver and you know yeah. the provider of uh, of things as opposed to the person who shows up with a you know a, a, a hand open. Yeah, and I feel like psychologically, like I still do that. Like I tend to trick people into getting them to ask me for what I want to ask them or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that passive aggressive? I don't even know what you would call that. I, but I know, get it. But- it's hard. It's a, it, there's a manipulation involved. I have this conversation with myself and with uh, friends of mine on a, on a regular basis. And that's like, you know, at the level of career success in any field, but I guess like relative to this podcast, um, you know, we're talking about literary pursuits and artistic pursuits and, you know, people who quote unquote succeed, who find a way to uh, support themselves and sell books and all that kind of stuff, which is a very rel- you know, a relatively low number of people, even in the context of people that I talk with on this show. Yeah. Uh, more often than not, like way more often than not, uh, these people are really good operators. And <laughs> I don't know what else, I don't know what other verb to use. You know, that you, you almost have to do that as a necessity. And what I find is that there's conflict in me about that because I feel like there are certain aspects of that, you know, like, like, we, like you just mentioned, you know, asking people for things, that's not always fun. Yeah. Um, some people are really good at that and people just say yes, or they they can like coax people into like offering the thing before they even ask for it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then the other thing is that like, there's a, there's an element of manipulation involved and there's an element of, um, you know, I guess at its lowest points, using people to get where you want to go and to step, you know, use them as stepping stones. And, um, I know that's kind of a cynical view, but I see it and I think it's a real thing in certain moments. And, it's like how to negotiate that with yourself and, and then also keep hold of like, you know, your highest ideals. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you struggle with that? Um, I don't know if I struggle with that, but I definitely kind of like understand what you're referring to in terms of, to me, it seems like when you're, um, I don't know, a writer, you're putting out a book, um, you're not the only book out there. Um, and especially when you're with like a small press or something, it really feels like being almost kind of like a sperm where it's kind of like you're just <laughs> one sperm amongst like, thousands and thousands of sperms and one of them is going to be able to make it true but like most of them will just like crash on the walls or something i'm kind of like yeah i like this metaphor yeah um so i understand this kind of like there's all this like almost like thirst for blood or something like where it's kind of like i'm going to use everyone and everything to kind of like be able to social climb a little bit to be able to sell like i don't know 200 more copies or something um like the like skilled networking you know like really yeah that, that kind of thing yeah, and like my philosophy for um, so new tab is like uh, a novel, and when I was writing it, my only 
goal with it was to make my life interesting. And I was just kind of like, I don't want it. I don't want to be concerned necessarily with, because I understand like it's a book that I've put a lot of um, personal, um, it's probably like the thing that I've worked the hardest on in my entire life. I, I think it's like funny. I think it's relatable. I think it's like well-structured and stuff. So I've worked like super hard on it to kind of like make it accessible and make it interesting and make it like worthy of like a person's time. Um, but at the same time, I understand that like I'm issued by a small press. So, and they work really hard, but they're still a small press. And I only have like so many chances to kind of like stand out from the pack and stuff. So um, I told myself that I didn't necessarily want to be concerned with kind of like, oh, I need to sell like however many copies or something. And all I wanted to do was kind of like um, be able to kind of like generate, use this book to generate opportunities for me that would kind of like make my life more interesting. So like traveling and doing readings or um, kind of like being able to come in contact with people that I wouldn't have come in contact otherwise or open new doors for me professionally or something. And, um, yeah. And from that perspective, it just seems like anything that's happening, even like talking to you right now, it just seems like, um, this is a huge, this is a huge benefit of the whole process right here. Yeah, exactly. So it kind of like pays up in that sense. That definitely is making my life interesting to be talking to you. You're located in Los Angeles. Um, I'm in Canada or something. Am I, by the way, can I ask you this? Yeah. Am I like the second Canadian that I give that on? Cause you've had Shayla. No, I had Sheila on, and then I had uh, Essie Adugian. I'm gonna okay. screw up that name. And then <laughs> I, I don't had, know that is. yeah, no, but she won like some big prize in uh, in, in Canada, and I'm yeah, I'm like 100 percent sure, like 99.8 percent sure that she's from Canada because it was a while okay, ago. But there's yeah, been, yeah. you know there's been a small handful, but not maybe not enough. <laughs> yeah, it seems appropriate. By the way, we're recording this on Canada Day, so that seems shockingly appropriate. Yeah, today is Canada, and I actually knew that strangely yeah. from my Twitter feed. So. Um, well, okay. So, you know, that sounds like a healthy approach, you know, that you're going to, you know, write this book, you have an eye, you know, just the, I think that writers can sometimes have a tendency to, um, fall prey to like, you know, my book's going to be the one, my book's going to be the sperm that connects with the egg. (laughs) (laughs) And even if, even if the writer's coming out on a small press, but it sounds like you have like a rational, you know, understanding of the marketplace and and, and a rational approach. And it seems like psychologically healthier to just be like, this is going to make my life more interesting, you know, and it's going to connect me with people. Yeah. And like the thing that I feel you need to be rational about as well is I definitely feel like we're currently with books in this kind of like weird middle ground where we haven't fully made the switch to digital yet. Like music has fully made the switch to digital, like there's still vinyls and stuff, but essentially you're just listening to um, digital products. And uh, even if it's kind of like... um, released as like an album it's much more like the idea of an album now than it it actually is like a physical album that you go out and like purchase Uh, and i feel like books and like they're still kind of like stuck in this there's ebooks but it's still like um an emerging medium or whatever and um so it it becomes this thing where it's kind of like you want like people still do like hardcover books because um as opposed to kind of like just like copy pasting their novel and like putting it on a like talk catalog or something um, they still do hardcover books because they want their books to be seen as art. Like if you just dump something online, it's likely just going to be seen as like some other thing that's done online. While if you do a book, then it's kind of like, oh, well, maybe that is worthy of like critical attention or something. Um, and I feel like we're, especially like, um, people that are maybe my age or like younger than me. Um, I feel like I'm like 30 now. Um, um, and yeah, I feel like um, people that are my age or younger than me want to, um, the best of both worlds. Like, they kind of, like, want to be able to – it's pretty annoying to have this thing where it's kind of like, 
oh, like there's um, to get my book, there's like a paywall. You need to pay a certain amount and like you'll receive it in the mail or something. Um, while um, with like music, you could just kind of like download it some random website or something and you would get it instantly. Um, and it's kind of, I feel like we want the best of both worlds. We want to be seen as art. So we want like the, the physical thing. We also want like to be able to share like wildly because it's kind of like, it doesn't make sense if I'm not going to be making money out of this. Um, like I'm definitely not going to be making like a million dollars off of new tab. Like I'm definitely going to be making some money, but definitely not like, um, uh, an insane amount. And so it just doesn't make sense to me that it's kind of like, um, it just becomes frustrating that I can't like share it widely and like send as many copies as I want or something to kind of like just give it away like as widely as possible because having readers is much more interesting to me than like making money at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, yeah, that's a it's an interesting conundrum because the book you know the book is object definitely lends a certain um, prestige or nobility or whatever it is you know. And when you're just digital, I think the, the just the perception is that it's it's worth less. Yeah, and the thing about it too is that, like, yeah, it's like, what if 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 you're really just interested in readers, then, you know, just give the thing away. But the, the problem is that, like, that actually can sometimes hurt readership because people aren't interested in if something's free, people don't trust it. Like, yeah, exactly. You know, so they almost want to pay for it. I think that that that's can, that can be important to a person's perception of value. Yeah, and it's almost kind of like you can kind of like do stuff where it's like, okay, like I'm going to pretend that it's this much, but actually I'm just going to give it to you away for free. So you feel that like you got something that was worth money that you got for free or something, and I'm just tricking you into taking it for free or something. So, but yeah. So what do you see as the, like, what do you see going forward? Do you think that we're going to come to a time like the music business where things in literature are purely digital? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like we're going in that direction, but I'm not sure exactly when that's going to happen. Like we might need this kind of like killer device to kind of convince us to massively switch to eBooks. Like we're kind of getting there with like the Kindle and stuff, but, uh, ultimately we're just going to have to kind of like find the problem with like releasing stuff digitally is that it still feels like it's kind of like the, when you put something online, like, I don't know, like an essay or something, it just feels like it automatically like, um, becomes this kind of like. 12 hour, like, um, it, it has like basically 12 hours of attention span where it's kind of like it's on social media for a little bit and then it just disappears. Um, when you put like an essay or something. And, um, I feel like the danger with digital stuff is that that's what would happen. It's kind of like, great guys, I've released my novel online. After that, it's like, bye. Um, so with like the physical thing right now, there's still a lot of advantages. Like for example, when, um, I send like, if I like mail myself, I do that from time to time, like just mail packages to people. And because uh, I enjoy doing it, like I put um, special stuff in, like I sign a book and stuff. And like, um, yeah, so when I mail someone a package or something, usually um, I'll have them on social media and like they'll, uh, more often than not, they'll just like take a screenshot of it, like post it on Instagram or something when it arrived. And I can use that as well, like post it on Tumblr and just be kind of like, oh, this is like this person's copy of like new tab or something. And um, all of that really helps in terms of kind of like since it's a physical thing. Um, every kind of like different apparition of it, like a screenshot that was taken or like a mention somewhere or something, it just becomes content that I can use to kind of like put it back online on like different social media. And like, it's almost like bumping, like kind of like reminding you of like the existence of this thing. Kind of right. Thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, no. And, and you know, what's interesting too, is that like in the context of Altlet and I feel like maybe, um, just generationally speaking, younger readers, uh, you know, people like as millennials or whatever, uh, I feel like there's a lot more connectivity and uh, like like literature uh, and news about literature, it, like for that community, and uh, you know, seems to travel well in ways yeah. in ways that like you know you could have an author uh, of great renown who doesn't have anything when it comes to the web, you know. 
<laughs> I notice it by tracking like analytics, you know, for posts on the the nervous breakdown or for po- episodes of this podcast. Like, you know, all the writers, like when something happens for them online, like people talk and there's like real connectivity and a real community that's happening online. And, um, that definitely feels like a, like, a, uh, a shift or a distinct yeah. change, you know, because my, you know, I'm uh, 38 and I don't, I feel like, you know, my generation's online, but not at that level of connectivity. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I mean, for me, I'm kind of like in between where it's kind of like, I remember the life before the internet, but at one point I just kind of like, it felt like I kind of like, um, I don't know, just transition online. And after that, it was like, no going back. Like it just became this like clear, almost like a love affair with like, um, my parents actually had like, so the weird thing is that we didn't have cable at my house. Um, we had like only, um, this is like in the nineties and we only had like, um, these like we had like four um french television channels and like one english television channel um and but we had the internet like starting in like 95 which was like the earliest that it was available in um my hometown um and it was like this weird like dial up like internet so it was this weird thing where um i didn't understand exactly like my uh parents like priorities in full um at the time i guess um but at the same time i definitely benefited from kind of like since I didn't have access to television all that much, I only had access to kind of like seven web, the seven websites that existed um, during that period. Um, yeah. Um, so it's kind of like I started kind of like just massively going online. And after that, there was just no going back. So you're like really fluent maybe in ways that like I wouldn't be. I feel, I feel like there's some sort of like natural thing. Like if you as a, you know, starting in your early adolescence or online constantly, um, it's like that formative period of between like age, what, 11 or 12 and when you get out of high school, like I missed that window. That's like, I didn't didn't get online until I was like uh, almost out of college. (laughs) I definitely feel like I was a sponge when I was like, um, it's kind of like I learned um, English in pretty much the same way where it was kind of like, I learned it through by like watching the Simpsons and CBC. And it was CBC is like the um, national like television channel. So it's available and kind of like, even if you have like weird, like antenna things, you can get it um, in Canada. Um, So yeah. um, And it was this thing where I was watching the Simpsons in French and for some reason, they just decided to cancel it. And it was this thing after that where I kind of like, I was like, I remember like being kind of like craving, like being like nine or 10 or something, and like craving watching The Simpsons, like almost kind of like I needed like a fix or something. And then I realized that like CBC, the only English channel that we had, when you speak, I spoke like zero English at the time, um, was kind of like the, they were showing like all new episodes. So it wasn't even like stupid reruns. It was kind of like brand new stuff. Um, so I immediately kind of like felt like this kind of like light bulb in my head going on. And it was kind of like, I'm going to try like doing this. So I started watching The Simpsons and CBC. And after that, it was kind of like I graduated from that to um, kind of like being able to navigate online on my own and understand what like other people were saying. I started watching like stuff like um, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in like uh, like the reruns. Is this how you uh, learned how to speak English? Yeah. How did you learn how to write English? Um probably just kind of like um, spending a lot of time online and like being, being kind of like um, accustomed to becoming accustomed to like the language. But I definitely had like this kind of like when I started creative writing, I felt like I had this kind of like um, experience that was very strange in terms of um, I wanted to have had access in French to kind of like a very wide pool of vocabulary and I could do kind of like complex like, sentence structure. But I would try to do it in English. I would like trip up or something. And um, it was kind of like I was able to kind of like um, make it work, but it was still kind of like this thing where 
composing in English was taking me like a little bit longer than would have in, like, in French. And um, it just became this thing after a while where I was kind of like, I'm just really tired of like trying to make like these complex, like long, like almost like David Foster Wallace-esque like sentences. And I was kind of like, I feel like my ideal sentence would be like, Jim goes to the beach. Like, I feel like that would be my ideal sentence. Yeah. So I started kind of like composing more cleanly. And after that, it kind of like gave me like this like desire to... Desire. Yeah, to do both a little bit. Yeah. Desire to what? You just cut out. Yeah, sorry. Um, this like desire to, um, yeah, just kind of like be able to mix, like have access to kind of like, um, like new tab at the sentence level isn't super overly complicated. It's just very pure, like smooth life, uh, um, tone. Uh, but I kind of like that. Like I felt like it had like this kind of like authenticity. It's from first person as well. So I felt like it had like this authenticity that just sounded like natural speaking. And okay. So and what about like your grammar and usage? Like you're pretty good on English. Like you actually, yeah, I was able to get by. I mean, like what helped was really just kind of like composing with like word with is like, Oh, this word is actually spelled completely wrong. Like I would do stuff at first where, um, it was kind of like words that are, I can't remember what that's called, like a word in two different languages that mean two different things. It's like the exact same word, but it doesn't mean the same synonym. thing. Uh, not synonym, but like, um, so, um, for example, like the word deception in like French, it's deception, which would be like, uh, being de- uh, deceived and like, uh, oh no, no. So, uh, deception in French would be like, uh, being disappointed and like deception in English would be like being deceived. So okay. it's kind of like I would use deception in English and being kind of like, wait, why doesn't that make sense? Like people would just look at me weird in like workshops or something. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. There's a word for that. I'm pre- it's escaping me as well. But um, okay, so just like, I want to hear more about like your upbringing in uh, this. What, was it a small town in, in like northern Quebec? Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, my hometown is not that much going on. It's like there's like one street with like bars on it, and it was like they had. Um, the very first Walmart that like um, shut down because like the employees tried to unionize. Um, that was like my hometown. Uh, what was, and what it, was it called again? It's called Jean Pierre. And they have like this like huge like aluminum factory which employs like basically like um, probably like solid like forty fifty percent of the town. And yeah, so um, when I went back, uh, I'm not that close to my parents anymore. Um, I went back this time. Um, it was just kind of like, you know, these group of people that are kind of like some groups don't necessarily have like good chemistry together where it's like, you don't necessarily have like a lot of common or like you just don't get along or something like that. Um, with like me, I have like two older sisters as well. Um, it was this thing where, um, it just felt like when we became kind of like adults and we graduated from, um, I don't know, like, um, we tried to transition from when you're a kid with like your parents, you have this kind of like master slave relationship. And, like, uh, when you transition as an adult, you kind of become, like, this kind of, like, peer-to-peer relationship. And it's really hard sometimes. Some, some people are just unable to kind of, like, make that jump. Uh, like, become friends with your parents or something. And, yeah, so I had this thing where um, we had, like, this kind of, like, Christmas um, kind of, like, I don't know, like, thing just went, like, really wrong. Where, like, people were screaming, like, shutting down doors and, like, yelling and, like, just kind of, like, um, slamming doors and stuff. And, like... Um, after that, it just became this thing where it's kind of like, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, I don't see the, I don't know if I feel there's like, um, that this group has like, can come together as like a unit and survive. I feel like individually, there's maybe a chance to make it work. Like if my sister and my sister ends up hanging out, that might work. Um, but like, well, you don't get along with your sisters either. Not really. Um, but it's kind of like, um, they haven't followed me. Obviously, like, I decided to switch to English and a language. I still speak, like, fluent French and stuff. Um, but it's kind of like I don't see I have, like, a lot of, like, ties to, 
like I rarely go back to uh, like my uh, like the last time that I went back to my hometown was like 2010 and I don't like necessarily go visit my sister and stuff we're not like in constant contact it just feels like they have their lives and that's it like so how, often do, how often do you talk to your sisters uh I haven't talked to them in like two years and I've talked to my parents in like four years holy shit See, I'm, um, a, I'm, a, I'm a parent so I'm like this can't happen <laughs> no, no. uh yeah I mean like I don't necessarily like um hope that that's what happens to you I definitely not like um advocating this lifestyle to like anyone that's listening um but at the same time it felt like this my best possible option out of like this possible situation was to do this and it felt empowering at the same time to just be like okay i'm going to do something for myself which is kind of like take some distance from this and if there's ever kind of like a situation where um there's possibility to kind of like i don't know like um time enough time has passed so that we're beyond this so like we've changed as people or something because like human beings are constantly changing anyway like who knows where we'll be like five ten years from now or something so yeah. maybe there's a way to kind of like reconnect with that but for now it just felt like it was impossible to so continue it, with that that's cool do your parent were your parents like overbearing as with the disciplinarians when you were a kid not necessarily it was kind of the opposite like my dad has like some sort of like he kind of has like anger issues and he was like very um I would say, like, self-involved and even, like, narcissistic. Like, just kind of, like, being completely unaware of, like, the needs of other people around him. He was just kind of, like, this, like, almost, like, satellite of anger that would kind of, like, orbit around, like, uh, my mom and my sisters and stuff. Did he, and did, he work, did he work at that aluminum factory? He did not. He actually, like, uh, my dad's a teacher. So he worked at, he actually taught at, like, the CIGEP level, which I was mentioning earlier. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, um, so, and my mom was just kind of, like, um... The, um, the thing with my mom is that the uh, my parents had like this marriage of um, that was like mutually beneficial for them. My mom, I never felt like she was this kind of like um, I always felt like she had this kind of like terror about living in general. It was just kind of like afraid of like doing something for herself or kind of like taking kind of like a strong or making a strong sense or something or like deciding what she wanted to do for her life. So I think as an adult, um, and this is just me speculating, but I always felt that um, she. Um, just had no idea what to do with her life at all. And my dad was kind of like the complete opposite. He was kind of like a decision maker. So he was kind of like, that's where we're going. That's what we're going to do. Like, this was going to happen. We're doing this for me. Da, da, da. Um, and um, my mom was also like, my dad was born with like a small birth defect. So he has like... A small uh, birth defect? Yeah. He has like this um, nerve in like his right leg and his um, uh, right arm that like doesn't work fully. So he can't fully close like his right arm. Um, and so he mean, kind of like, what do you mean he can't close? Like it sticks out? Oh no, no. It's like, um, it's just kind of like his hand. He can't like fully like close his hand. Oh, and okay, that's, okay. Yeah. I thought it was uh, like no, it's not the arm itself. Yeah. All sorry. Right. <laughs> uh, and yeah. So, um, and my mom was kind of like for a woman, she's like pretty tall and she's like pretty strong. She's almost made like a horse. Um, Wait, so and, you think you're, you think your mom's made like a horse? Well, in the sense that it's kind of like she can definitely carry your weight in terms of kind of like, um, uh, she can kind of like, she's pretty strong physically for a woman. How tall is uh, she? Um, she's like, what, um, she's been what my height, so like she's like 5'10", 5'11", or something, but like she's just kind of like well-built and stuff. Right. Um, yeah, and... Is she good looking? Uh, she's, she's, she's a lady. She's a charming lady, okay. but, um, I definitely felt like she, I, I don't think she's ever felt like, uh, because of that, like I don't think she's ever felt like really like feminine or something. She's always felt kind of like, um, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter, but, um, so basically my parents had this kind of like marriage of like all right, like I'm going to take all the decisions and uh, in return, you're going to help me compensate for this physical handicap that I have. Um, so that was kind of like the deal that they sort of made without necessarily maybe stating it implicitly, but it definitely felt like they were operating under those rules. 
Um, Whether your mom was supposed to help your dad with his disability or his kind of uh, yeah. What like so? What is it limit? How 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 limited was he? Like he can't pick things up or yeah. There's that, and it's kind of like um, even yeah, exactly. So if you had to kind of like move stuff around, like move a couch or something, like that would be really difficult for him. Um, and he's always tried to kind of like compensate for it to kind of like just go beyond the handicap or something. But sometimes there's just nothing you can do. Is he right-handed? Is it his right hand? Uh, yeah. So he's actually left-handed, but oh. it's his right hand that's fucked. Well, that's good. I was going to say that make life you can't like write or yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking masturbate, but maybe that's <laughs> that isn't the gutter. It's just yeah, yeah. if you're like a teenager and you yeah, no, that would be your really hand bad. can't close. <laughs> um, okay, so you know, you know, like life in your household growing up, um, your sisters. I'm surprised. Like if your if your dad was like an angry guy and your mom was sort of passive, it seemed like you and your sisters might have like locked in and had a close relationship to sort of like take safe harbor in one another, but that sounds like that didn't happen. How many sisters yeah, do you have too? I have two. Yeah. Um, I have two older sisters. When I was a kid, like I was kind of like the boy and the thing as well is that, um, I was kind of like the surprise one. So, um, my mom and dad kind you, of like, you were an accident. Uh, sort of. Yeah. Um, so like, um, after like my second sister and my dad was just kind of like, hey, you know what? Having kids, like kind of done that. We could kind of like move on. Um, and my mom was kind of like, okay, well get a, like a vasectomy and we can do that. So my dad kind of like did this thing where, um, he like, I think he was just like, he had like, uh, I don't know, maybe last minute doubts that he wanted to go through with like the vasectomy. So he kind of forgot his appointment, which was probably like unaccidental. And, uh, after that, like my mom got pregnant and that was me. Um, and yeah, so I was kind of like the weird, like last one and, um, the thing with my sisters as well is that they really wanted like another sister. So I was always kind of like rejected a little bit by them. And the thing as well is that I was very gullible as a kid. So it's kind of like we would play, I remember like we would play like video games or something. And then we would kind of like pass the controller around. Um, Cause like it would be like a one player game or something. And uh, my sister would always kind of like dupe me with stuff like, cause he wanted to, um, it would be something like we're playing like a platform game or something. And it'd be like, just fall into like the, a hole that's like right there. It's just like, it's a secret shortcut. Like it's going to give you like 10 extra lives or something. And I would do it. And it would just be kind of like a regular hole where like you die and like you lose a life. So I had to pass the controller to like my sisters again. And so they would kind of like dupe me so that like constantly, so that like um, my turns playing would be like shorter than theirs. And they would kind of like um, beat me regularly at like board games and kind of like just competitive, like video games and stuff. They would like outsmart me or like, um, and were, they, like, were, they, were they a team? Like, were they like they were uh, unified against you, or were they a little bit? Like sometimes, yeah. Um, but he also had this thing where when my older sister did like her was like a teenager or something, she was like pretty rebellious. So she had this thing where it's kind of like she just kind of like flew. She just wanted to rebel against my dad like really, really hard. And after that, she kind of broke away from kind of like because like the thing that she would be doing would be having repercussions on like my other sister and me. So my other sister was just kind of like not having this anymore. So for a while, yeah, they were kind of close and like they were kind of like ganging up on me a little bit. But yeah, and like the um, last time. Do you resent them? Like, do you look back on this? Like these videos, like they tortured you basically. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I can kind of understand because we were kids. So that's not like, it was kind of like definitely like this, like evil, like, um, it was just kind of like, they had this opportunity to entertain themselves and they took it. It's not like they kind of like were, um, insanely cruel to me. It was just kind of like, they had, um, these ways of kind of like taking advantages of me that were essentially harmless, but kind of like would, entertain them like greatly and that would happen like time and time again wow okay so and like where are they at? like do they get together now or like is your whole sort of i think they kind of like so my sister that's like in the middle lives in quebec city now 
Um, and she has kids and stuff. She's like a nurse. And my other sister is like this like um, French-Canadian singer-songwriter. So she operates Quebec as this weird thing where it's kind of like, um, so like for French-Canadian culture, there's this whole like other like side star system where it's almost kind of like um, there's like um, French-Canadian movie stars and like French-Canadian like singers and like French-Canadian like, I don't know, like artists in general. Um, and you can kind of like... Um, um, the fact that they operate in French, so their movies are in French, and like they speak about like Quebec culture and stuff, like that seems to strike a chord with um, Quebec culture and kind of like its material that kind of like represents more um, Quebec culture than if you had like some Canadian movie that's shot in English about like whatever. Um, yeah, so usually the Quebec people kind of like gravitate towards that star system a little bit more, and like my sister, my oldest sister, is kind of part of that a little bit, so she's part of that. Is she, is she famous in Quebec? Uh, sort of. She definitely has like a fan base. She's not kind of like at the level of kind of like she's going to sell out like Olympic Stadium or something. But are you, uh, not, are you related to Alanis Morissette? I am not. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, that's a question that I love. I honestly like she took like the her Twitter or her handle on Twitter is like Morissette, and I frequently want to ask her kind of like just tweet at her or something and just ask her if like people misspell her last name all the time because that seems like something we could bond over. What's your sister's name? Uh, my sister is Geneviève. Geneviève. Yeah. Okay, like Genevieve. Yeah, kind of. Okay, so Genevieve Morissette, and then she's like yeah. a folk singer in Canada? Sort of, like, yeah, she's more like, uh, yeah, exactly, kind of like. All right. I want you, I feel like uh, I want you to get back together, at least with your sister. <laughs> I can try, I can give you an update, like, yeah. you know, I'll get better. Let's call her right now, let's get her on yeah. the phone. Um, Just call her right now, damn. But you, don't uh, seem, but you don't seem, like, hugely bitter, like, are you in denial? Like, are you, because it's, it's hard. I hope I'm not in denial, but I it's definitely hard, It's hard like, when families lot, disperse. So. It's hard when families disperse, you know, it's like, there's like, because like I, I have a friend who doesn't speak with his parents. This happens a lot, you know. Like I, like what you described is not totally abnormal. Yeah. Um, where there's communication breakdown and there's anger issues and being together is just no fun. And so <laughs> people give up. But the problem is that, um, you know, I think like when you're you're biologically connected to people. I mean, if they're seriously abusive, then obviously you have to cut the cord sometimes. But otherwise, it's like it's like trying to run away from yourself. You can't do yeah. it, right? Yeah, no, and there's definitely this give and take with families as well. The thing as well is that you're accumulating this, like, body of history that's, like, really massive. It's like, oh, right, I've known you since birth. So it's kind of like you've definitely, like, seen me at um, – um, you definitely have, like, memories of me, like, the, when I was, like, 13 or something, and it's something embarrassing. You could throw that in my face, like, like some family reunion or something just to make fun of me. And it just becomes this thing where it's kind of like – um, sometimes it's like helpful to have like a fresh start with other people as well. So there's this kind of like problem with families where it's kind of like there's so much history that sometimes it just gets in the way. Yeah. Um, it's hard to get to see each other as kind of like you wouldn't necessarily approach like if I were to meet you in like a bar or something we never met and we probably had like a completely different conversation. But since we're like family and we have like this kind of like anyway. Well, no, it's like, you know, as I think about this as a parent, it's like I almost feel like I need to be because uh, it's it's hard as you know, my, my impulse is to want to like, you know, to be to really be involved. And I think that's a good impulse, but, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't want it, to, it, it's hard to avoid not being overbearing. And I'm imagining as my daughter gets older and into adolescence, it'll be even harder. <laughs> and I, I, I feel like if I could just like control myself <laughs> and just like not be, um, not overdo it. Do you know what I'm saying? That it'll sort of, I mean, I feel like there's it'll no, help, it'll help in the long run. You know, and yeah. if I'm just like, if I can just stay calm and just like not try to impose my will and let her grow up and, and make her mistakes just like everybody does, you know, because I think your impulse is to want to protect them or to want to somehow, you know, steer them away from, 
you know, the things that they sort of, you know, need to go through. Does that make yeah. sense? But it feels like this kind of thing where it's like there's no perfect parent thing. Like it feels like you're going to impact your child regardless of how you – yeah, exactly. Even if you're kind of like kind-hearted and like you listen to your children and you try to kind of like uh, – you're extremely generous towards them and you try to kind of like um, teach them like valuable life lessons and stuff and like bring them up right. It still feels like you're going to impact them in some way where it's kind of like if you're overly present, then it's kind of like, uh, like my dad's always on my case. And yeah, if like, you're kind of like – yeah, if you're completely absent, like – Sort of like how my dad was. It's kind of like you just don't have a relationship with like, man, it's really sucked. My dad was never there. Was he, was um, he, was he physically gone a lot? Or was uh, he a little bit, a, yeah. Was he emotionally gone? He, I think it's both, actually. I think he was like the physical absence, like totally mirrored the emotional absence. Where, where did he go? Where was he at? Oh, I mean, he just like worked a lot. And if not, he was just kind of like, would just hide in like, um, he had like this office at like um, my parents' house and just like hide in that for like hours and just do whatever it is he was doing. Oh, okay. Was he a drinker or anything like that? Not really. Not really. Okay. No, at the very least, that's that. What did you say? At the very least, that's that. Like, there was no drinking involved. Okay. Well, that's good. You just like to hang out. I mean, was he, it's a, he sounds like he might be, uh, like, in a different generation, he might have been a hell of a gamer. He could have <laughs> Yeah, I could have seen him do that. But, I mean, like, with um, the physical handicap, obviously, that would have been, like, a little bit harder. But oh, still, yeah. I definitely <laughs> felt like he had, like, the personality for that. But, yeah, my dad just reads, like... It's weird because at the same time, like, he has, definitely has anger issues, but he still reads, like, weird, like, Eastern philosophy stuff, like Buddhism texts and, like, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. he's very interested in that, but it's all kind of, like, on almost, like, a theoretical level where it's kind of, like, he doesn't realize how um, – and I don't want to be too harsh, but fuck it, I guess. Um, he – I don't think he realizes that um, it's kind of, like, his life is actually going the complete opposite direction as, like, the teaching these readings. Like, it's hard to apply. It's like easy. Yeah. It's easy to read, but it's hard to apply. And like, yeah, no, exactly. And it's kind of like you, it makes you feel as well. Like, yeah, I'm like so wise. Like, I completely understand these. But yeah, no, not not exactly. You got any anger issues? I don't think I do. I mean, like, I'm definitely. Uh, um, I mean, I've definitely had kind of like um, I don't thrown like a temper or two uh, or stuff that like really upset me. But at the same time, I think I'm pretty calm and like rational. And I, I think I have a good way now to kind of like I have good vocabulary in my head to kind of like gain. The thing is that I do I do really well at kind of like being distant from things. It's kind of like part of what I like from and where like my personality it really makes sense is when you understand me as kind of like an alien where it's like um, I feel like where switching to English made sense for me was that I suddenly felt like um, I was like um, the French guy in kind of like an Anglophone community and therefore I was like an alien. So that made complete sense to me because I was comfortable in that role. And, um, where like usually the, like, like the physical, like the physical and like practical circumstances of your life mirrored your emotional circumstances. Sort of. Yeah. So I guess that's similar to my dad in that sense, but, um, yeah. And shit, what was I saying? I don't know. Like your, like your dad, video gaming, shifting, feeling like an alien. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess um yeah, so I guess it's a little bit like that where um yeah, um I feel um where I excel is kind of like feeling like an alien, so therefore kind of like distancing myself from things instead of having like a very emotional, like direct reaction, usually I'll be able to kind of like gain some distance from it and like observe it. Like the last time that I went to my hometown, I remember um being kind of like so I didn't want to go. This was like two thousand ten, probably early. I didn't necessarily want to go and um, I did this thing where at the time I had like this coworker that I was friends with and she was from Brazil originally. And she was like in the process of doing kind of like an application to get like a permanent residency in, um, Canada. 
And she just told me this thing where she was kind of like, well, like, um, I want to stay in Montreal. I love it here. Like, it's really good. But, like, I'm ashamed. It's almost like I'm ashamed. I have no idea what exists in Quebec outside of, like, Montreal. Like, I've never been to Quebec City. I've never been to, like, the smaller towns. I've never been to um, anywhere like that. So I kind of told her, like, well, I need to go back to my hometown. Like, if you want, you could totally come with me. We'll stay at my parents' house. Like, just you being there is going to make it, like, so much easier for me because, like, I'm going to have, like, almost like an ally with me and stuff. And you can experience it. Like, you're going to see. Um, it's, like, um, a very typical, like, medium-sized French-Canadian town. It looks like every other medium-sized French-Canadian town. Um, so, yeah, you're definitely going to get, like, a full experience if you want to see kind of, like, the smaller towns of Quebec. Um, so she ended up coming with me. And during that trip, it was, like, completely... I remember, like, the times that I'd gone back to my hometown before that, I felt, like, increasingly removed each time. And that specific trip, being with her and just kind of, like, showing her around and kind of, like... It felt even worse than that. It just felt like I wasn't even there. I was almost like a ghost or like I was just kind of like observing it behind this kind of like glass window or something. There was definitely some distance between me and like my hometown. I was just kind of like pointing at things and not even kind of like it was almost kind of like walking around, but like thinking that other people couldn't see me or something like there was just like this kind of like um, reaction to it. that it's kind of like I'm so removed from it that I can't even insert myself into it anymore. I'm just like, well, it's, a, you can't, it's the old phrase. You can't go home again. That's real. Yeah. I've been back to I me mean, because I moved away from my hometown in Indiana. And I mean, I haven't been to my hometown in Wisconsin in 20 years, but, um, you know, when I go back to those places, it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's like you're walking through like a museum of your past. And I, I get that feeling. That's a real yeah. thing. Um, so, uh, I guess I, I, you know, I, I would encourage you to at least write your mom a postcard. <laughs> <laughs> Just write her a postcard. That'll make me yeah, I mean, do it for, for me. The for the record, I'm, like, madder at my dad that, like, I am at my mom. So yeah. I definitely, like, would uh, kind of, like, if I could, kind of, like, my parents kind of come as a package deal. So it's hard to kind of, like, isolate one. But, yeah, I'm definitely kind of, like, I, I miss my mom sometimes. I would definitely kind of, like, consider just kind of, like, if I could have, like, only a relationship with her, I would definitely do it. But, but postcards, dude, this is the beauty of it. They can't respond. I mean, if they respond, yeah. it's slow. <laughs> it's a contained communication. You know, I'm a big fan of postcards, not in, not only in the context of, like, you know, repairing relationships with uh, estranged parents or whatever, but just in general. Like, I think postcards are nice. They're sort of like old school text messages. You should have like some kind of like um, web TV special or something where it's like a reunion where like you bring my parents and I don't know and you bring me on set or something. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah, we should do it on the show. Bring them on. Yeah. We can have like a family discussion. And you know, I don't mean to get too up into your business. This is just yeah, no, go I'm, for it. I'm projecting uh, my own family experience. And there's like all this fear in me because my daughter's at this like sweet age right now where she's three. And we're really close and she's just all heart. And, you know, I know how people get as they grow up, like she's going to become a complicated person, just like every person. And, uh, you know, as a parent, you sort of, or at least, you know, speaking for myself, like I just, uh, very much want to make sure that like, we don't uh, lose touch. That would be hard for me. (laughs) Uh, so looking forward, uh, on a literary level, like now that you have this book rolling out, um, you've developed this Anglophone identity, um, you've made this shift. That's interesting. You know, I think that's really interesting to kind of like make a decisive break with, um, your, your lingual self and to, yeah. like, you know, to make kind of like a pretty permanent shift into a different realm in that way. And it's definitely freeing in a sense. Well, yeah. And to, but I mean like, like it, it feels like, I mean, plenty of people do that. They're like bilingual or they live in a different country and speak that language and, you know, speak it primarily as a function of where they are. But I think to do, to do that, but then to also write in it, you know, uh, try to try to produce literature and it is like going all the way in that direction. And it's a big identity shift. So, um, you know, you, you've got these pieces in place, you've got the online community, 
you're a member of the Altlet community, you've got the book coming out. Like, how do you, uh, looking forward, uh, hope for things to unfold? We'll see. I mean, um, the best, very best thing that can happen for me is simply to increase my standing. So, um, what I'm hoping will happen, I've been kind of like, um, trying to kind of like, um, put it out on like as many outlets as possible, either through my press or either through like my personal contacts. And what I'm hoping will happen is simply that it somehow lands in front of like the right eyeballs. Um, I feel like since it's true, a small press to have like any kind of like success that is bigger than simply like true my own online presence it's going to require to be like championed by someone or something um i definitely by who like who would you who's your dream like fairy godfather or fairy godmother is there a fairy Um, godfather thing is that a real thing okay but you know i don't know i'm not sure there's like anyone that like i'm specifically that i'm thinking of like i'm just thinking of stuff like i did this thing um where um so there's this newspaper that's this national newspaper it's um uh, it's edited and made in Montreal. It's called the Gazette. And um, when I got through that, um, it was kind of like they put me on like the, since it's like a Montreal novel, so it's really well for them and stuff. Um, and so they put me on like the front section of like their culture um, section for like a weekend, like Gazette or something. And that got me like a lot of like, that definitely felt like a taste of like what mainstream exposure would feel like. Um, so it's kind of like I got like a lot of um, kind of mentions and like Twitter followers and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, so that was definitely interesting to kind of like get like the taste of that. That's what it f- would feel like as opposed to kind of like um, doing like smaller, um, I don't know, like an interview for like a, a webzine or something and kind of like getting some exposure to that. But in the city, kind of like experiencing this kind of like completely new people that I've never met, like um, being able to kind of like uh, in feeling like a genuine interest towards like, um, my book and stuff. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, so hopefully I guess what I'm trying to say is that I feel like I don't necessarily have like a single like literary champion in mind. Um, I definitely kind of like draw, uh, inspiration from people whose literary career I admire. Like I like what Shayla did. So I'm definitely hoping yeah, like, I was, invited- was going to say like Sheila Hetty, like, I mean the Canadian literary community, do you guys all look out for one another? Like, have you felt- sort of, I mean, Sheila's definitely super friendly. So, um, I have never met her in person, but we started kind of like, um, following each other on Twitter and we had kind of like this like little thing. I sent her a copy, uh, of new tab, like by mail, just being kind of like, I totally feel you should have this. Um, it, I don't even, it doesn't even matter if like you read it or not. I'm just kind of like interested in you owning a copy because I admire and like, I respect her work. Um, and yeah, so, um, I invited her to, we're doing this reading in Toronto. That's, um, later this week and I invited her to that. Um, so I don't know if she's going to come, but we'll see what happens. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, um, yes. So seeing kind of like, it's definitely kind of like extremely hopeful to be able to see a lot of Canadian books like can do well within Canada, but you don't necessarily go anywhere after that. And it's really helpful to kind of like have, uh, this example of like someone that was able to kind of like push through and like uh, at the same time remain like completely accessible. Like Sheila has had like pretty good success, but at the same time she's not like out of reach. If you actually can like email her, usually she like responds and stuff. So she's not kind of like placing herself. Well, that's author famous. I mean, you know, yeah. I like I'm always like skeptical of anybody like any author who's like I just can't do email. It's like really you're really getting <laughs> that many email. I mean, some people do. Yeah. It. That's like there's like four people who can't handle <laughs> their email. Like we're authors for God's sakes. Like just respond. So. Um, are you going to move to Brooklyn or anything like that? 
I'm not sure, but um, on your mind, like, do you think like, oh, maybe I need to go over there and and be a part of that scene and try to get? We'll see. I mean, it was definitely fun to be there for like a couple of days and stuff, and it's definitely kind of like just loaded up on contacts like so fast. It's just kind of like walking around and talking to people. It just feels like everyone's doing stuff. And for Montreal, like for the Anglophone community, like I'm starting to kind of like Montreal has like a lot of um, for the Anglophone community. Like people coming in and uh, people I've stayed in Montreal that are kind of, like going out. So people come here for like school a lot. And after that, like once they've exhausted the city, usually they kind of like, they don't see it as like an end point for like the Anglican community. They usually see it as kind of like the sex stepping stone. Like, okay, I'm, I've done Montreal. I can like move to Brooklyn or something. Right. Um, for me, it would require kind of like some organization. I definitely don't know if I want to do like the um, New York thing where, um, I don't know, I have to kind of like, because like my rent in Montreal is super cheap right now. And I definitely don't know if I want to kind of like sacrifice. So it's allowing me to kind of like work less and be able to work on writing. So I definitely don't know if I want to sacrifice that. If I felt that I had like a really interesting offer professionally, I would consider it. Right. But I don't know if I'm, I'm not like entirely convinced that that's the way to go. I did move to Toronto for like six months. Um, it was this thing where uh, that was like last fall. And it was this thing where I just wanted to experience it. Like I felt like I had kind of like, okay, like I've kind of like. Toronto's like the New York of Canada, right? Sort of, yeah. Um, or yeah, Chicago. It was definitely interesting to have this kind of like, um, I don't know, like just being a city that doesn't operate according to the same rules and like that has kind of like um, a different approach to kind of like professionalism and stuff. And it's funny as well, because like when I moved to Toronto, there's like a lot of people that I felt uh, I was like looking at like I knew them from online or something. And I was looking at like their social media presence kind of like, yeah, it seemed to be really good. And it's kind of like I got there and a lot of people that I knew were kind of like actually they were all struggling. Like there was this um, person I know was like this really talented like essayist. And like she was writing like for a while. Um, part of what she was doing was like writing these like 200, 200 word like blog posts about like Hollywood celebrities. So it's kind of like, does Justin Bieber likes to eat grapes? Like, sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, it definitely felt like everyone was just kind of like struggling and kind of like, um, so it was funny to have this perspective of kind of like, okay, they come across as like, a lot of people come across as kind of like young professionals that are kind of like that issue together, but beauty in the background is like so much more that's going on. Right. So it's fun to have this. Beauty, beauty of well. social media, the beauty of, yeah. of uh, creating an identity online that is completely dissonant with like your actual <laughs> self. Well, I mean, they hustle, and I, to a degree, I respect that. Like, whatever works, that's what you do. No, I just mean, like, you know, creating, like, like trying to present well online when, like, the reality yeah, yeah, yeah. is that, like, you're you're scraping by, which, you know, <laughs> I get. Um, yeah, I should put that on my social media profile, actually, just scraping by. <laughs> right. Uh, so, are you Frank Hinton, before I let you go? I am not. Um, so, you Frank, know Frank is Frank, a, Frank's a dude. It's a dude. I've convinced myself that it's a dude. You can believe whatever you feel like, but to a degree, it's kind of fun to. I feel, like people, of... I feel like people in Canada actually know and that Americans are left in the dark. It's, kind of, <laughs> it's a national conspiracy. I've never met Frank. If I ever travel to. So I'm doing like uh, book festivals and stuff, and I'm hoping to travel a little bit more through that. Um, I'm not going so far. I won't be going to like Nova Scotia or anything like that. But if I ever go to, Van- to Halifax, I would definitely reach out to Frank and try to kind of like hang out or just kind of like have a chat. I definitely, um, I'm a hundred percent. Take a picture. It's like Sasquatch. I want to yeah, see yeah. yeah. I wouldn't do that to Frank. I think I would be like very respectful. We kind of like my need for privacy. I've never no. taken like I've need, I've met like a lot a bunch of times. I, I, I like, want, I want Frank. I want Frank outed online. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much more fun to not know. Why do you need to know? I don't know. I need to know everything. <laughs> That's why I do this show. I'm very curious and I, uh, I like when things are transparent. It makes me uneasy. Yeah. But no. You should definitely, Frank, Frank has a book coming out next year. You should definitely get Frank. I've uh, tried, but the thing is, Frank is presenting as a woman. Frank's a dude. He doesn't want to do a podcast. <laughs> it's like, how, you know, he's like, that's, that's the problem. That's the, that's what's convinced me that it's a man. <laughs> uh, so anyway, 
Uh, it's been fun talking with you. Congrats Likewise. on the book. Congrats, Thank congrats you. on the book. Send your mother a postcard <laughs> and uh, let me know how it goes. Sweet. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. Okay, folks, there you go. That's Guillaume Morissette. Go get his novel. It's called New Tab. It's available from Vehicule Press. You can find him online at guillaumemorissette.com. He's also on Twitter, where his handle is at Anxiety Issue. And uh, he's on Facebook, I believe. You can find him. Just Google him. He's out there, and he's waiting for you. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget about the app. You want to stream every episode? You want access to my conversations uh, with writers like Tao Lin, uh, George Saunders, Megan Boyle, Mira Gonzalez. Come on, alt-lit people. Sign up for premium. Get the app. All you got to do is get, uh, just download the app. It's available wherever apps are available, whatever your device is. You get the app, and then within the app, you sign up for premium. It's like uh, it's just like a few cents every month. You have a few cents. Can you throw some coins in my virtual jar? <laughs> do that if you want to stream. Uh, what else do I have to say to you? I have to go soon. I think I already talked about that. I feel bad about not preparing a more cohesive and entertaining monologue. I'm going to worry about this. I'm worried about, uh, mentioning Frank Hinton's genitals on the, uh, at the top of the show. Uh, worried that that might be perceived as insensitive. It's the nature of my being to second guess myself. In every possible opportunity. I meant it in jest. I meant it in... <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. It's going to make an infinite jest joke. But I didn't do it. I reeled it back in. Are you proud of me? Please remember that... Uh, what is it? Nathaniel West died one day after F. Scott Fitzgerald. And Ernest Hemingway died one day after Louis Ferdinand Celine. That's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for your support. Thanks to Guillaume Morissette. Go get his novel, New Tab. And uh, I'll be back uh, again soon, just a few days, Sunday, with another episode of this program just for you. I will deliver it into your device, into your ears. I will offer it to the uh, universe via the Internet. All right, I'm going. Bye. Bye. <laughs>